Hello and welcome to a special podcast from The Spectator. This discussion about whether AUKUS can shift the balance in the Pacific was recorded at Conservative Party Conference this year. Cindy Yu, our broadcast editor and host of our Chinese Whispers podcast, is speaking to Tom Tugendhat, a Minister of State for Security, Alicia Kearns, a member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Sophia Gaston, Director of the British Foreign Policy Group, and Sir Martin Donnelly, President of Boeing Europe. This podcast is kindly sponsored by Boeing. Alicia, um, if you win the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, um, you'll be holding the government's feet to the fire when it comes to foreign policy on all sorts of things, um, not just on China or on the Indo-Pacific. Um, but just on that region for now, um, when it comes to the integrated review or when it comes to future direction, you know, what are the things that you're going to be looking out for to scrutinise the government on? So looking specifically in the Pacific, I think one of the big pieces missing from that discussion is the India aspect mm-hmm. of it. I don't think anyone in this room can tell me, oh, I shouldn't say that, I said that earlier and that got me in trouble. Uh, <laughs> I don't think many people could tell me what the British policy towards India is, aside from the fact that we are pursuing a trade deal. Um, and actually, if you talk to MPs, they, they, a lot of their inboxes are full of issue, concerns around Kashmir and other issues like mm-hmm. that. But we don't know what the Indo bit looks like. Another big concern for me is as we pursue this Indo-Pacific strategy, it's really important we don't further split uh, the global south and the global north. And yes, we have some seen some what some might call absenteeism from the global south when it comes to some of the coordination impact we'd have liked to have seen from them. But if we force them to pick, if we constantly say you have to pick China or us, you have to pick Russia than us, they won't reward us for that. And it's a real challenge. But I think actually it comes back to something Martin just said about trust which is one of the big things we have to learn post-IR, is that we have one, uh, post-Ukraine, is that we have one of the best intelligence networks in in the country, and um, Tom will do an amazing job looking after our security services. But the facts are that last September, this time last year, when Britain and America went around the world telling our allies that Russia was going to invade, that it was going to happen after the frost and after the winter started to pass, uh, they were going to try and decapitate Kiev, and that would be the goal of Putin, The French told us that just won't happen. Macron has too good of a relationship with Putin. The Germans said that's not what our intelligence shows us. And when I met with European ambassadors to discuss it in the immediate months afterwards, they said, the reason we didn't believe you goes back to the Iraq war. Now, that to me is really worrying, and it means we need to do some real soul-searching, looking in the mirror to assess why are our foremost allies making decisions when we declassified intelligence based on what happened when I was a child. Um, you know, these are the things we need to be looking at. And then the bigger things, beyond the kind of specific country focus, resilience. The last two decades we have been optimistic and hopeful. You have to be in diplomacy. It doesn't work without hope. But we didn't do was to prepare to fail. So we just lent into the hope, to the optimism that we could bring these countries to the table and build these new alliances with them. Resilience matters because if we don't have resilience at home, and I mean culturally, informationally, educationally, financially, you name it, whole state resilience, you cannot be tough on the world stage. You cannot protect yourselves. You cannot fulfil your UN Security Council responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Atrocity prevention, there is not enough capability or investment in atrocity prevention within the system. That is a failure. And the final is the multilaterals. I want to see the government saying that we are going to take the fight to defend multilaterals, particularly things like justice system. We all know what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, looking back to Bosnia, looking back to Rwanda, Justice matters if communities are going to heal, if they're going to rebuild, if we're going to deter in future, if we're going to prevent. And we do not have adequate investment in any of our multilaterals, let alone justice. And if we're not willing to fight for those multilaterals, which uphold supposedly the rules-based order, 
then we are going to see them undermined. We are going to see countries putting forward presidents for Interpol all the way through to organisations we might not be paying attention to, like agricultural uh, committees within the UN, things like that. We have to take the fight properly, and I think it's one of our responsibilities. So trust, resilience, atrocity prevention, these are the things I'd love to see come through in the IR. Mm, that's a really interesting point about the Iraq war and the lasting trauma about intelligence. Um, Tom, I just want to pick up briefly on one, one thing that Alicia just said, which is about India. You know, Sorry to go back to this network of liberty thing, but you said that it was this kind of signal of the countries we would like to do business with. Um, India, by some measures, is not the kind of liberal that the country that we are or that Australia or the US are. Um, they're in the Indo-Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific, we're also going to need to work with countries like Vietnam that are not liberal in the same way or even democratic. So does there, is there a limitation to the network of liberty idea? I mean, Boris Johnson had a global Britain. Is that a better way of... They're, um... they're all various ways of saying roughly the same thing, which okay. is ways of building up alliances. And, and India is clearly a democracy, and India is clearly a strong partner, not just of ours, but of many countries uh, you know, around the world. And Including is... Russia. It has a relationship with Russia, and it has done for, uh, well, I was going to say for 70 years, but actually it's longer than that in different ways. And, you know, it it would be ridiculous to ask uh, India to change its position uh, overnight. India is, uh, as you know, a fifth or a quarter of the world's population. It has uh, relationships, as you would expect, quite rightly, with every country in the world, and it has bilateral relationships that are different from ours. That's not really surprising. The United States has relationships with Russia that are different from ours. France has relationships with Russia that are different from ours. Every country has relationships with each other that are different from ours. So it's, I, I mean, I think, if you'll forgive me, the picking on India is... is, is I'm not picking on India. Okay. I'm, I'm more saying, picking on the word liberty, whether or not that's the most appropriate way to split us and them. I mean, there, there is no accurate way to split us and them because there is no us and them. There are only different partners that you engage with in different ways. Uh, and so I think... Uh, having an aspiration to working with countries who, more broadly speaking, uh, look to uh, the rule of law or the liberal order, if you want to put it that way, or cooperation of uh, free states, then I think that's that's what we should be doing. Uh, and if it encourages some others uh, in that direction, that's great. Uh, and sometimes we have to make decisions based on uh, the interest that we have to keep ourselves and our partners free. All right. Um, I'm sure you've got better questions than I do, so please do put your hands up um, if you'd like to ask our panel any questions. And, yeah, if you could just introduce yourself, say who you work for um, or whatever, where, where you've come from. Um, that'd be great. This is a lady here. Manai Nordham. Yeah. Hi. Manai Nordham, Dutch Embassy. Uh, just a quick question. The AUKUS deal is meant to make the world a safe place. On the other hand, China has launched an attack at the IAEA, International Atomic and Energy Agency, on the AUKUS deal, that it's not uh, in line with the NPT uh, agreements. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on how to avoid the IAEA being politicized over Mm -hmm. this discussion? Mm -hmm. Um, Any other questions? Gosh. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Hi there, Richard McClure. Um, I used to be in the army many years ago. Um, I just wondered about New Zealand's position on AUKUS and how significant that is uh, going forward. Brilliant. <laughs> um, okay, well, um, Martin, do you want to take the um, IEAE question? 
No, not really. It's not something that we are, we, we are directly connected with. I mean, I would just say from, from my past life that it is important that we maintain the rigour and the objectivity of all of these bodies. And, and you know, the point has been made uh, by, by Tom most recently that it's, it's very important these bodies do their job. Uh, we are committed to a rules-based systems in all of our liberal democracies uh, and we need everyone to, to apply the same rules. And that's not always happening. And I think there are areas, multilaterally, as Alicia has reminded us, where we can and should be doing more. Uh, it's in everyone's interest, but it can become a security challenge if, if we let these things slide. Mm. And do you want to answer the New Zealand question? or No. No. <laughs> um, Alicia. Uh, so I with my New Zealand friends in the room, uh, look, I think New Zealand is charting a very different course and they have absolutely every single right to do so and I think there was, a, however, a concerted disinformation effort that was pushed into New Zealand and across the Pacific at the time of this announcement mm. to try and make it the suggestion. We know that New Zealand has a particularly acute uh, domestic feeling towards nuclear and I don't think it's unwarranted. Um, so the fact that they're nuclear powered, they are not nuclear <laughs> armed, um, was missed, and that was able to really spread far and wide. This is the problem with disinformation. You know, if I psychologically, if I tell you that the next person to walk through the door is going to lie to you, even if it's your brother and you can't work out how the hell Alicia seems to know them and know they're going to lie, I've planted that seed. And unfortunately, that disinformation is very hard to shift once the idea is put there. So New Zealand is charting its own course. Um, I have been, a fr I will always be a friend to New Zealand. I have been slightly critical um, of some of the approach towards China, but strategically. New Zealand is our friend. They are there with us, they stand by us, they work with us, they want to uphold the international rules-based order. Um, but again, as I touched on earlier, it is not for us to say this must be what your position is with China, this must be what your relationship is, because the interdependencies are completely unique. And you know, New Zealand will always be a close friend of ours, and they absolutely should be. Mm -hmm. uh, Sophia, would you like to take those questions on? Well, I mean, there's obviously a distinction between nuclear energy, nuclear capability, and nuclear weapons. <laughs> um, and I, um, I don't think that we should be surprised that China pushed back um, uh, against AUKUS. I mean, we absolutely anticipated that they would, and, and, and you know, it's their right to do so. Um, but I think all three parties are confident about squaring the circle on, on this distinction between those different areas. Australia obviously has a very different uh, nuclear debate. Um, I don't think there's any interest in sort of springboarding our focus into a wider kind of nuclear energy program or, or all those sorts of things. They are still difficult domestically, and, and I think the Australian government's had to be, you know, quite careful in, in talking to the Australian people about what this pact is about and that it's not about that. It's it's about a very specific um, capability that is is actually intended to be a deterrent rather than um, something aggressive, which is how China likes to... I mean, look, China will depict almost anything we do as, as an act of an aggression, so um, I think we just have to take all of that with a, an enormous grain of salt and, and hold our reserve. Um, uh, uh, I resolve, sorry, but I, you know, I, I do think that at the same time we can't ignore the fact that those conversations are going to be there and they will be tricky um, in, in each of the different domestic contexts. Um, 
which is why I think the Pillar 2 aspect of AUKUS becomes so important in the narrative as well. Um, this is not just about defence. I mean, you know, I think the central challenge with the IR is to start to sort of better link the narrative of, you know, economic growth, national security, energy resilience, you know, all of these different aspects need to come together, that domestic and international story. I mean, if we really harnessed all the Pillar 2 cooperation um, and interoperability opportunities, you know, that's creating jobs. That's helping our research commercialization pathways. That's, you know, there, there are leveling up dividends, shall we say, um, to, to really kind of uh, going full uh, pelt at, at Pillar 2 as well. And, and I think the more we can build up that story, um, the less impact that China's messages are going to have, um, you know, not just in the, to the domestic audiences, but to our partners. And I think it's absolutely essential with something like AUKUS that we are confident, not just between the three nations and understand what we're doing, but that we can talk to the rest of the world about what we're doing, mm -hmm. and we feel that that's a persuasive case. Um, and I think, just quickly on New Zealand, I mean, one thing I would say that has been clear over the past couple of years is that there's been a lot of talk about expanding alliances. Um, there was a D10 moment around the G7 last year where people were wondering if that could yeah. get off the ground. Um, I think what's quite clear is that actually the, the first phase is, is going to be about deepening existing alliances in, in forms of minilateralism and that, you know, it's, it's a pretty complicated landscape at the moment um, and, and we just need to make sure that we've got really, really solid foundations at the core and then be trying to build up from there. So um, I think, you know, that's why AUKUS in some ways is a kind of, you know, distillation, a hyper-concentration of, of Five Eyes, which is an extremely resilient, enduring alliance. So you've already got that trust, that sort of pooling of sovereignty, intelligence, and so on, which allows you to do that. Uh, I hope that if we can make a success of AUKUS, that that then becomes a model and a framework through which we can start to have conversations with others. And it would be crazy for us to think about AUKUS in isolation. It has mm -hmm. to have ways it has to have a very clear understanding of how it can either dock in or be complementary to other existing alliances. Mm -hmm. Tom? Uh, I mean, I think, honestly, I think everything's been said, hasn't it? Sure. Um, can I ask you a question about the Solomon Islands and the Pacific Islands in general? Because we've talked about a lot about the Southeast Asian um, side of things, or the Australian side of things, but obviously something else that is coming to a fore. And it does seem like you know wherever we look, China has interests there and is making actions there. Mm. Obviously, people in this room know about the security pact that was signed with the Solomon Islands. Um, China has links with other Pacific Islands, which is very deeply concerning to Australia for obvious reasons. Is AUKUS going to be able to help that um, side of things? Well, I hope partnership between, you know, AUKUS countries and, by the way, others will help that. I mean, the French are very active in the Pacific and have been for many years. Uh, and, uh, I mean, they're the only European country to have a part of their state in, in, in the Pacific. So I firmly expect they will have a, an active engagement. It's worth remembering, actually, the French have a unique and distinct relationship with Australia, which admittedly went through a bumpy patch just recently, but is a very, very deep uh, alliance and totally distinct and separate from mm -hmm. uh, the US-UK one. So, you know, there's a whole series of different areas in which I think that we should be looking at this 
relationship. And, and I think that, uh, you know, even countries like India are beginning to have their own uh, interests as they've launched their own uh, vessels recently. Well, in fact, many of their vessels they launched decades ago, but they've just launched their own aircraft carrier, their own domestically built aircraft carrier. So they are expanding into these areas, and I think that they're going to be an important part of this conversation as well. And um, if I may say, yeah. I also think uh, we, our Australian allies have always come to our assistance on all sorts of issues, whether it's global coalition against Daesh, uh, which wasn't in any neighbourhood, but they came, they played a full role. There is a role for the UK with the Pacific nations to for once come to the call of our Australian allies, because when in your near neighbourhood you have very set relationships sometimes, they flex, they change, but having an outside voice who has different baggage, I'm not saying we have no baggage in the Pacific, but we have different baggage, I think could be very helpful. And, you know, we should be there to be called on, to be leaned on, to be helpful where, where necessary, where we haven't necessarily been able to in the past. And I do think on Solomon Islands... Uh, a lot of us are hearing that there is much worse detail to come out mm -hmm. about potential levels of participation and concerns. And I do think, again, that's another bit of when we talk about the Indo-Pacific tilt. What do we mean on the Pacific Islands? Which Pacific Islands are we most focused mm -hmm. on? Liz has done a very good job as Foreign Secretary in expanding some of our footprint. Um, but I think we do need to focus on which countries are we most wanting to engage with and what are those outcomes? What's the effect we're trying to achieve from those relationships? Because I can't tell you that when I speak to foreign office officials, they can tell me what the objective is necessarily of their engagement in all places, except for to provide an alternative voice, which matters. But we need to just flesh that out a bit more. Alicia, on that, um, this is particularly why the French non-involvement in AUKUS does seem a little bit odd when it happened. As Tom says, you know, France does have very active interests in the region. We are a country that don't have active interests in the region, short of um, you know, wider geopolitical concerns. Um, and we're 9,000 miles away, so, so why... why do you know? I mean, obviously you went in um, government, but... <laughs> so, I, look, it's not the greatest surprise to me that France isn't involved, and that's not to diminish in any way their role in the Indo-Pacific. They have a very important role to play. Again, they bring a very different diplomacy, a very different focus. But, look, uh, the way I'll put it is this, is that in the times that I have been in military bases, whether it was uh, Kuwait or whether it was NATO bases... The French quite often are very limited, same in CENTCOM uh, in Florida, the military headquarters. They are only allowed to go to certain parts of bases because of their ability to... It's about, it comes down to intelligence sharing. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I would not have France join AUKUS. Um, and yes, I didn't want to see the kind of diplomatic fracas we had. But the fact is that we do not share with French the level of intelligence that we do with other partners. There are historic reasons for that. There are current reasons to that. I wouldn't see that changed, and unfortunately, when you go to any operational base, you see French uh, secondees or staff members limited to where they can go because of the ability to trust whether or not intelligence will be shared or how it might be used. And that's a very difficult thing to say, but we also have to be open. We can't have every single friend in every single conversation. Um, and that isn't to say we haven't... They are an enormously strategic partner for us. They are a key ally. We need to work better with them. We need to see not this rubbishing of the idea that we could have a good relationship with them. They are our friend. No one on this panel would not say that France is not a very good friend, not least because Tom might find that he came home in a suitcase throughout the door. <laughs> but um, we, you know, they are our partner. But it doesn't mean on intelligence that we are necessarily on the same depth of relationship mm. and that we can be. Right, let's go to more audience questions. Here they come. <laughs> yes, one here, please. Yeah, still. Um, hi, M Michael Hinsey. I, I, I'm very much behind August. I think it's a very good, uh, good initiative. But what worries me, it appears very tactical. And again, let's see if, I, if, I, if I may, it goes back to your point. We actually do have um, 
assets down there. I mean, Diego Garcia, if you just go across the ocean, it's not, I mean, you get, you, you take, it depends how you take the map. If you take the map the right way around, it's darn close, right? Um, so, but look, it, so what I'm trying to say is that where does it fit strategically with China's strategic work, whether it's through the, uh, through the, um, the GSI, the, uh, the Global Strategic Initiative, the GDI, the Global Development Initiative, it seems incredibly tactical where we are now, or important, and I'm behind it, but I really believe that, that we are missing a trick here because the, the, it, it just seems to be so, such a tactical re response to mm -hmm. something that's very, very important. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And we've got a question here as well. Let's take another one. Um, Angus Gillen, Brunswick Group. Just thinking about Pillar 2, I was wondering what your thoughts might be on how the competition and regulatory environment will change through AUKUS with businesses engaging specifically on concepts such as um, mergers and acquisitions in the aerospace and defence sector. Thanks. Great. Um, do we have one more question? Yeah, here. Hello, Hans van Leeuwen from the Australian Financial Review. I'm just wondering um, about whether there's any uh, thought within the two non-US countries to in, in question in terms of resilience, thinking about potential changes of government in the White House in two years' time, and how how AUKUS would sort of keep the body of it going if the head was was went back towards a sort of MAGA candidate who, you know, may may treat an ally and a foe in rather similar ways and be less kind of clear on which side of the fence they were sitting on. Thanks. Great question, um, Martin. Do you want to start with the regulation question and take whichever ones you would also like? Yeah, I think. This is a very important and, as we know, not straightforward point because somehow we have to manage an environment where you have the long-term certainty needed to develop really complex programs in partnership with sophisticated um, armed forces. We also need a, a competitive environment, frankly, for the companies uh, to keep everybody efficient, but also because it's, it's taxpayers' money that, that we're talking about here. So I think this again comes back to this question of trust. And, and for me, you know, AUKUS has got to be a 10, 20 plus year relationship, or actually it's, it, it's not going to, to deliver. So we, we have to have that confidence, and I believe we do, uh, on the basis of history and shared values and, and shared interests, that our companies can uh, cooperate strategically, can partner, uh, can, uh, if you like, take each other over while respecting the core strategic imperatives mm -hmm. uh, of each of us. And personal view, I would expect to see more of that happening over time because I think it, it is more efficient, but it's got to go with maintaining open markets and an openness to, to, to innovation. Um, and I think that's, the, that's also the answer to, to the tactical point. AUKUS has got to be a strategic long-term relationship which complements our other alliances, particularly, uh, of course, in NATO and particularly uh, with our European allies. And, you know, I would say France isn't just a friendly country, it, it's family. And those relationships remain critical uh, to the UK, but also to, to NATO as a whole. You fight best with your family. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Well, Lucy, I was going to say last, last night, didn't she, that it was just Levanta that what she was doing with um, Macron. Yeah. Um, Tom, can I, just picking up on Martin's point about 10 to 20 year relationship in AUKUS um, and that question about White House um, longevity there, um, the Trump question, is there concern about that? No, I don't think there is really. I mean, I think I, I get Hans's point, and uh, and he spent long enough in the diplomatic service before turning his hand to journalism, uh, to know that the um, the reality is that um, uh, 
relationship between officials, between uh, intelligence services, between soldiers uh, can go much deeper than any relationship um, between politicians. I mean, the reality is the special thing about the special relationship is that it doesn't matter who's in the White House and who's in number 10. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it special. Uh, that it is much, much deeper than any political deal or any here-today, gone-to-tomorrow politician. But we're talking about a particular manifestation of the special relationship in AUKUS. You know, we're not talking, I, I don't doubt that Trump will still have, be very friendly with the UK, but will he be making the same commitments in the Indo-Pacific? I mean, I, I, the idea that the US is in some way going to withdraw from the Indo-Pacific, I think, is bizarre. I mean, the reality is the US has a much greater uh, defence contribution to the Indo-Pacific <coughs> than any other country, including the countries that are there. Um, if you look at the um, US troop commitments in South Korea, in Japan, uh, their cooperation uh, in places like the Philippines, where they've been for well over 100 years, if you see the cooperation that they've done with uh, Australia fighting ISIS or Daesh in Indonesia, and indeed in many of the Filipino islands, you know, which is very much in Australia's back door, uh, you see uh, an engagement by the US in fighting Islamic violence, in fighting piracy and fighting autocracy and supporting uh, commerce and so you know this is and the americans for very obvious reasons see the pacific as very much their backyard uh, and the idea that they're going to withdraw because of a four-year term or an eight-year term i think is not very credible sophia let me bring you in here well <laughs> and maybe if you could particularly ask uh, talk about the strategic fitting in as well mm -hmm. with with AUKUS. yeah i look i i think it's right to, that you know, to be asking these questions. And because I, I absolutely agree with Tom that, you know, the foundation of, of the special relationship and Australia's re security relationship with the United States, there in so many aspects, this is, it, it was a heck of a lot more resilient during the Trump years than perhaps was visible in, in, in the kind of media and political environment. Um, and, and I don't see any reason why that institutional relationship would be fundamentally challenged. But I do also think that there is a political element to to every alliance, and, and I know this is an alliance that's packed, um, but uh, some aspects of it and decisions that are taken and choices around language and tone and posture, the priorities of different initiatives um, are political in nature to some degree. And I do think that you know the United States is sort of coming into, I, I sort of in some ways uh, accept the sort of Bruno Mackay's theory in, in that, you know, it's not that the America is at the end of something and in a stage of kind of sta staggering behemoth in, in decline, that it's actually at the beginning of a new story about mm. a new role internationally. And, you know, I think in many ways its interests and its values will continue to be resilient and aligned with ours. But there, I would anticipate, there will be areas in which its interests may diverge. And that is, I mean, if we are talking about China, whether explicitly or implicitly, the United States' relationship with China is absolutely singular. And it is not something that we can ever replicate mm -hmm. uh, or, or create a degree of consistency between the three partners. So, I mean, my personal view is that the UK-Australia bilat should be the foundation of AUKUS, with the US as an absolutely essential, um, you know, third pillar of that and security partner and security guarantee. Mm -hmm. But I do think on some level there is a degree of political consistency and stability that I would anticipate being, um, you know, stronger and more predictable uh, between the UK and Australia. And, yeah. and that's where I would be starting at, at 
this exact juncture point. I think to to Michael's point about a question about about the strategy, China China is doubling down on its geotechnology strategy, and that and technology is going to become a much more central part of its economic structure and ambitions and plans. And we're already seeing manifestations of this in the way it's kind of reconfiguring and reprioritizing the BRI, um, <coughs> some of its work in different kind of international governance forums. Um, it, it, this is partly in response to China's economic landscape, which has some pretty difficult fundamentals at the moment. Yeah. Um, and you've got a political compact there that is entirely predicated on economic growth. Um, so the fact that China is centralizing technology, and you know, we need to be able to respond to that, but we also need to be able to think completely outside of a China prism in terms of our own interests, yeah. because there's some things that we can do well through our own logic that China can't. But this is about an end-to-end -end pipeline that is not just about the research the development, the research commercialization, the application of technologies, but about giving us the right for standard setting and governance frameworks, which is absolutely really where a lot of these battles are going to be taking place over the next 10, 20 years and where we need to be a lot stronger and have a much more active posture. So I think in terms of the AUKUS strategic framework, that is central mm -hmm. um, and there will be other areas that will emerge and, and you know as ever one of the most difficult things at the moment to do is, is we have to anticipate where things are going to go next mm -hmm. and it's going to go into places that we can't even <laughs> conceptualize right now so we need to build an, a pact that can um, be adaptive mm -hmm. to those sorts of things and, and be future oriented as well as retrofitting and plugging some of the gaps that we have at the moment. I think I just add on, on Tom's point about regardless of who the heads of machinery are that is exactly the beauty of NATO that is a, a less so NATO but NATO is part of that but the special relationship five eyes it all continues the hard work does not change regardless of who is leading the government but I think on so my just, just yeah. briefly on that but Trump did take the US out so which is why okay. yeah which is why when I start with NATO I was very annoyed at myself but the other two um no, but yeah. yes but that's that's not a a core defence no, sure. Um And I think it is madness to suggest that he would pull out of AUKUS, particularly when we've seen him be forward-leading on China. I think he'd probably be, you know, if I was the American regime, I'd be offering him some visits to go and see some sexy stuff about quantum and underwater <laughs> this, underwater that, and he'd suddenly be on board, I imagine. Um, but I think on Michael's point, Michael, you've been very forward-leading on China and very thoughtful. Your point around being tactical, I think that is what we need. The same as when we look at our military and what our armed forces are going to look like over the next decade. We need more expert, more nimble um, alliances, units working who are very good at what they do and that go very deep in that relationship. I think we don't need broad breaching, uh, more rhetoric focused. Or the, you know, we, we need to really drill down to where our expertise are, how we work mm -hmm. together. And we need to have the confidence as Britain to say we can't be everywhere doing everything. These are our areas of expertise. This is how we're going to play our role and this is what we're going to do. Um, but what we also have to do is create the space to coordinate with those that many of us might not want to. On China, our policy cannot just be to challenge them. It must be to contain. And by contain, I don't mean prevent China from doing what it thinks is right within its near neighbourhood. Every country has the right to protect itself and do what it thinks is right. But we have to contain its ability to undermine us, to hurt us at home and to hurt our interests. We have to challenge it where necessary. But we do also have to find the space to coordinate. And that's the most complex box that people don't want to talk about. How do we coordinate? Where do we coordinate? And that is what diplomacy 
is. It's messy. It's not boxes. It's not black and white. And our constituents may not find that very easy. It isn't a very easy thing to do. And I think that's the one where I'd love to see more uh, us looking at how do we use those alliances to find those spaces for coordination. Um, because no one in Britain will reward us if we suddenly say you can't get your toys uh, at Christmas for your, uh, for your family because they're being made in China. No one's going to reward us if we say right now you can't have your mobile phones or something else is going to go up. They're seeing the impact of Ukraine and they're scared. Imagine if we amplified all that onto two theatres. We have to find that space and it's the hard one to find. Mm-hmm. Right, let's do one more round of questions. Yeah, we've got one at the back, Rianne, just behind you. Thank you. Um, uh, my name's Tom from the University of Warwick. Uh, I wanted to ask about um, sort of the economic sort of challenges and the concerns that China uh, have sort of expanded in the Solomon Islands, for example, with the pact. But also uh, we've seen in the Caribbean and in Africa, especially in... Uh, countries within the Commonwealth, but also with the King as head of state, have a rise in Republic movements, and also the worry that if we remove, or if countries remove the King as their head of state and become Republic, will they become more reliant and more uh, friendly, possibly, with China through China's economic power and their soft power, which could be seen as increasing. So I was wondering if the panel uh, believes that possibly the Commonwealth have a quite a quite a big role to play in the next few decades uh, to stop China's economic power from increasing. Great. Big question for the last few minutes. <laughs> I think we had a question over here as well, yeah. Hi, uh, Toby Flower from Stonehaven. Um, I'm just interested to hear the panel's thoughts on the role that business can play as part of building um, building these relationships with AUKUS and especially Australia. Um, I know we have a, a fair few British defence contractors and, and businesses that are looking to do business over there. And I think for the sort of pillar two, could be very interesting on leading the way on what tech do we want to develop and how do you want to develop it? Great, thank you. And I think we had one more question over here as well, yeah. Hi, my name's Tom. I'm a um, student of international relations. Um, my question is also about the economic side of it. Um, obviously, we've got a new government, and their new sort of economic policy is very much focused on growth. Um, how can we ensure that this government makes the most of this, this sort of newfound demand for technology that could be created by the AUKUS um, agreement um, and ensures that defence contractors um, can contribute to, uh, to GDP growth from the UK? Brilliant. Okay, um, Tom, I, I think I'll... Um, come to you first on that. I mean, let's start with the growth question, whether or not AUKUS can help our domestic growth. Um, and I also know that you you have opinions about Barbados becoming a republic over the last um, uh, few years. Sure. I mean, look, I'll, I'll start with the second one, actually. The, um, you know, there are many countries around the world who currently have the king as head of state who have republican aspirations for perfectly understandable reasons. Uh, it is a historic legacy to have a, an overseas head of state. Some people are very comfortable with it. Some people have different views on it. And, um, you know, there's two high commissioners, well, one high commissioner, one deputy high commissioner in the room who uh, I suspect they represent countries that have nuanced positions on that. And, and it's perfectly understandable. Um, that's not the same as the question on um, Chinese interests in different areas. And, and we've, seen, um, we've seen countries that have... Uh, very close connections in the Commonwealth, some, some with um, uh, much closer connections to us than we may always uh, remember, who have uh, developed or deepened relations with China in different ways, and including um, allowing the stationing of certain elements of technology that we wouldn't be comfortable with. Um, 
and so the two are not connected uh, directly. Um, but it is, you know, I think, I think it is something that can sometimes be a tell, even if it's not a cause. Um, and so I think that it's one of those areas where uh, we should respect any country's <coughs> desire to choose their own head of state. I think it's a perfectly understandable thing to do. Um, I wonder, I wonder what I would choose if I were in their shoes. Um, the uh, the question on defence as part of the economy. I mean, it is it is pretty essential, frankly. Um, you know, we've seen around the United Kingdom um, the way in which defence has been a very important element in levelling up, um, not just in terms of AUKUS, but in terms of you know, if you look at the, the the different manufacturers around the United Kingdom, there are many. Um, of the industrial manufacturers, whether it's steel or technology, um, that are really making a huge difference to our defence environment and employing people around the United Kingdom. And this is, you know, really, this is really to Michael's point earlier. You know, if we're going to have uh, a proper strategic understanding of what our defence sector needs to be like, we need to be talking about China's routes through uh, to different sources of technology. We need to be talking about our own. Uh, production of rare earths, our own uh, ability to source material uh, and indeed to manufacture the exquisite technology that we're going to need for the future. And that uh, that's, a, that's a technology challenge of all of its own because so much of it um, is now dispersed and we don't have as clear an idea as to what we're reliant on. It reminds me of the, uh, the outbreak of COVID when we thought we were buying PPE from 30 different companies. It turns out that the 30 different companies sourced from only two factories in China, you know, and it turned out we were reliant on a single place. Um, right, we're quickly running out of time. Martin, just briefly, um, does defence businesses have interest in Pillar 2? Uh, short answer is, is yes. <laughs> I th I, but I think the two points I, I would quickly make are, look, we do need to use uh, the AUKUS relationship as a springboard for developing the next generation of uh, defence security tech, which also works to the benefit of our wider economy, mm -hmm. especially obviously in the cyber area. And governments can put together a framework to enable the large existing defence companies and the new smaller startups to work together on these projects. And I think that's a, that's a really exciting challenge. The second point, I'm afraid, is it, all this does take some money. So resources we haven't really talked about, but they are important and, and we have to be prepared to spend uh, what is needed. Mm -hmm. And my postscript is, and we also need to run an economy which can afford that. So the rules-based trading system mm -hmm. is very important for all of us. We have to do that safely and securely, but we also need to maintain those open markets that support prosperity. Mm -hmm. Sophia, Commonwealth is a way to counter China? Um, you know, I, we, we should be absolutely thinking about how we make the most of the existing <coughs> alliances that we have. I don't think Commonwealth is you know, been top of mind in terms of um, how we think about national security um, over recent years. Uh, I think to some degree, China's uh, incursions into parts of the world where we have Commonwealth partners has, has started to focus that little bit, but I think we've, we've still got a bit of a way to go until uh, institutionally we get to the point where that's you know, a, a really key focus. Um, uh, my feeling is, as I said earlier, that we're going to be focusing first on really shoring up and, and intensifying and deepening the absolute closest relationships that we have. Um, obviously, we have 
wonderful relationships in the Commonwealth, but some of them are, are a bit more complicated. Um, so I, I think just in terms of bandwidth, pragmatically, we're, we're going to start, you know, that's not going to be the first place that we start. But I do think, you know, and the PM has already name-checked Commonwealth a few times. I think there is an intent there, so so mm-hmm. we'll have to see. But, um, you know, I, I, I could see it taking on some more kind of functions in, in that kind of way, um, you know, procurement. And, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways that we could think about it. I don't think it's going to become a defence and security alliance, but I, I think there are certainly aspects of it, particularly when we're thinking about supply chain resilience, uh, that that may well become more important. And Alyssa, a very brief final word to you. I mean, I agree entirely about supply chain resilience. I think, you know, with the passing of Her Majesty, we saw how important Britain remains in so much the Commonwealth and how much it matters to us and how important it is to us. Any forum where we bring together like-minded matters, and I think it's very important that we don't allow it to kind of be dismissed as this non-consequential organisation because it brings people together who otherwise might not be in the same room. Um, And there has been some absenteeism when it comes to certain issues in the world where we haven't potentially liaised with, spoken to, worked with our Commonwealth colleagues enough. Um, So I would say all forums are important, but I think we can do more in it. But yes, it's not a defensive agreement. We shouldn't try and make it one. But let's make sure we never miss an opportunity to stand up for our values and bring people together. And the Commonwealth too often is that missed opportunity. Great. Well, thank you everyone for coming to this panel and please do join me in uh, thanking our panel.